All right, y'all, it's spring, and you know what that means. It's time to start planning our summer festival traveling. Yep, it's time to get into my Airbnb bag cross-country, a.k.a. uh, time to visit my homes all across the country. And you know what I never think about? Why not list my own spot on Airbnb and host some folks at my house? I mean, my house is cute. Yes, let's make money while we're spending money. Just trying to help you out, man, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. Ladies and gentlemen, what's up? This is Questlove Supreme. Wait, I believe, is this our first Questlove Supreme back together since, since what? Like last April? Since the Oscars? Um, I, feel, I feel like I've not spoken to you guys. Yeah, I think this is the first one. Maybe we did like one episode or something like that. But yeah, I was about to say, like, it's been uh, a long time. We've been doing a bunch of one on ones, but. I'll start off our episode, people, by saying that because of the ungodly amount of hours that I've spent at the Wynwood train station or taking the 105 and the 103 bus to my insurance job to pay for a demo, I feel just a little bit more connected to our guest today <laughs> than, any, than any other guest that's been Philadelphia adjacent. I'll put it that way. Now, I, I, I got excited. I get excited when any Philly adjacent guest comes on to oh, yeah. uh, Questlove yeah. Supreme. Uh, and no matter how much New York tries to claim you, I know for a fact that you did hard time at Montgomery County. Oh, so, yeah. You know, <laughs> once once a Philadelphian, always a Philadelphian. Anywho. Philly, um, and I lived in Pittsburgh, and I lived in Erie. I lived oh, Yens. In lots of different. Really? Yeah, Yens. You're the okay. first person that's used Yens. <laughs> My mother mother is from uh, Pittsburgh. So, uh, yeah, I I have definitely a share, a fair share of family members that, you know, have have educated, educated me on just life in Pittsburgh (laughs) in general. Um, I'll say that our guest today, um, of course, is a legendary singer, legendary songwriter, producer. Let's not forget a kick ass guitarist, uh, member of two legendary units. the first, of course, coming to us as a member of the Runaways, a band who pretty much defied all logic and stuck to their guns and pretty much had inspired a generation of uh, musicians and creators around the world. Um, and of course, the second band needs no introduction. Of course, I'm speaking of her namesake, Joan Jett and the Black Hearts, uh, class of 2015 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. What can I say? Without her, you know, I, I don't even want to limit it to just there's no riot girl movement. There's just there's there's a whole uh, portion of, of of hard rock and punk and a lot of uh, post late 80s, early 90s uh, bands that formed in L.A. that really wouldn't existed without our guest today. So without further ado, welcome Joan Jett to Questlove Supreme. So w- were you uh, talking to us uh right now where were you uh I'm, to us I'm home in New York out on Long Island at the beach you're still Long Island now. Okay. yeah well yeah I live at the beach yeah I'm like right on the water though like all right there. you know I just I discovered I discovered um in the pandemic and I keep telling everyone especially New Yorkers this and they don't believe me New York doesn't realize they have their own Mulholland Drive and they have their own Venice Beach. Now, oh, wow. you know, I've not, there was a point where I think 
the main train was going to shut down that leads to Williamsburg um, causing, you know, it was going to shut down for like two years or whatever while they did reconstruction, causing a whole borough uh, to literally relocate elsewhere. Like restaurants started shutting down and, and all of them basically relocated to Long Beach. So when a friend of mine made me visit out there, I, I didn't know what to expect. Like I was personally expecting, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of yeah, Yusuf yeah. Hawkins, like uh, post Benson Hersey's, you know, whatever. And <laughs> no, I went out there and it's like, yo, it is the shit. It was it, it was pretty beat up. Like when I moved here in 1979. Oh, moved, so you're like a loyalist. You've been yeah, there through everything. So I moved what you, here right after the runaways broke. Pretty much right after the runaways broke up, which is 79. Then so, I met my partner, Kenny Laguna. And he what do you make here. of it now? Because like literally it's like if I didn't have to be in Manhattan at like the drop of a dime, like I would actually move out to Long Beach. Like it's it's. They totally, I don't want to say just regentrified it, but they literally well, they just. They yeah, did. okay. They, they, uh, <laughs> they, you know, they're making it, I don't know what you want to call it. Nice, in quote. Yeah, nicer. Yeah, I, but, I wasn't I wasn't ready for that, so. Okay. No, when I moved here, it was, uh, they had just opened all the mental institutions or something. So when I got here, there were crazy people walking all over the place. And you could I could have bought my apartment for like 20 grand or something. But, you know, yeah, those the, days are long gone. The price is, is definitely going up. So, yeah. And now people want places like this. So even more so. And uh, yeah, and if anyone's like trying to sell their house right now in Long Beach can easily cake in high six figures to almost a million. Definitely. Like, that's that's where it is now. People are like headed up there. So I, I start off each episode with the question, uh, what? Do you remember what your first musical memory was? I can't, I can't be positive, but it would be... Either well, just my... one that you remember, not the technical okay. one. Like, all right, all right. Singing Mary Had a Little Lamb at eight months. <laughs> but I mean... <laughs> but I think of my, my father playing classical music or my parents listening to Johnny Mathis or something like that, Frank Sinatra. Okay. How, how long did you live in... Uh, well, technically, you were born in well, Wynwood, right? Yeah, I was born at Lankanaw Hospital. Lankanaw, yes. So wherever that is. Yeah, it was quasi. I moved very early. I moved at like six months old and moved to to Pittsburgh. So I can't really say I grew up in Philly. I was just born there. So when you have memories of your childhood, what's the city you think of? Maryland. Oh, okay. I moved to Maryland from Erie, Pennsylvania, when I was eight. When I was eight. So I moved, I lived in, in Maryland, Rockville, Maryland, from eight to 13. So really formative years, you know, when you come into your own, I guess, you know, go well, from being a kid to puberty and, you know, all those big changes that happen from, I'd say, to eight to your teen years. What effect gotcha. does that have on someone that, you know, where you don't have actual roots, like you kind of move every other year, or every two or three years, like? What effect does that have on you as far as like? That's a good question. I I wonder how much of it I'm doing psychology on myself. I was thinking about this the other day. Um, How much of it is my was my lifestyle from a very early age from being on the road, you know, just constantly moving and also but growing up that way too. never really being in one place very long. Longest was Maryland when I lived there five years. So maybe you don't really feel secure mm-hmm. in making friendships or mm-hmm. any kind of relationships. So, you know, I, I don't know, maybe I tend to keep people at arm's length. Okay. You know, it's not that I'm unfriendly. It's just, I'm not good with intimacy, I suppose. Hmm. That's real. Uh, do you have siblings <laughs> or like, what's the, no, it's, it's yeah, not I do, a real I do. answer. Well, I'm not good at faking it. <laughs> hey man, um, I feel you. Uh, I have a a brother and I have a sister. They both still live in California. My brother's in San Diego. My sister's in North Hollywood. Are you the baby in the middle or the oldest? No, I'm oldest. Okay. Okay. I'm the oldest. I'm out of here. Oh, instantly when you... You know, when I was 
16, pretty much, you know, oh, and, okay. I, and I left and formed a band and was not really at home much more after that. I think oh. I see the, I think I see the um, repercussions of that now later, but I don't know if that's my lifestyle or right. if it's from not really having that connective family thing. As uh, the result of moving, was that because you were an army brat or just my the father wind? was, you know, my father was an insurance man. So traveling insurance, traveling insurance man in the olden days that. I, is that a real thing or was that a hustle? <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> hey, I I went out to either way. I went out to 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 uh, Winwood to sell insurance. So I don't know. Maybe I was like working with for your father. Uh, yeah, yeah, but I guess you know they have areas and they'd go and I don't know if it was a door to door. I really don't know. I didn't <laughs> I didn't discuss it with him that much. But that's that's what my mother told me anyway. Traveling traveling salesman. Okay. So we Do moved around. Yeah. Do you remember the first album that you purchased with your own money? I should know this, right? Or single, or single. It probably was an Osmond Brothers record. Thank you. You know, oftentimes I <laughs> maybe I shouldn't people. be that honest. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the show for it. Yeah, you're getting too, no, no, no. too honest now. I was going to say most most people get stumped with this because <clears throat> I think for a lot of us, the answer is always going to be an an uncool answer. <laughs> you know, I think for the shut up, Steve, because he knows. No, I'm thinking of my my owners. Oh, okay. The least no. coolest, but yeah. Well, no, I you know I would naturally tell people like, oh yeah, Jackson Five or whatever. But the the, the real answer was Neil Sedaka. But like, oh, how's wow. that going? How how's that going to look in print? You know what I mean? <laughs> Not great. <laughs> right. Well, mine could so. have been the Jackson Five too. I mean, uh, you know what? Yes. I just um, I just got done watching the movie that you. One oh, awards you. for I've been uh, it, it is so great and uh, it reminds me of growing up because I feel like the music I grew up listening to was a lot more diversified and a lot a lot blacker than people would would even know I suppose it just seemed to be a lot a lot of all those songs. All those bands that were in that, very familiar with it all. But it you feels know, like stuff I watched as a kid. Right. You know, I, I don't know. I loved it. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of people, you know, especially with this movie, the, the kind of the underline or the, the, the undertone of it all is basically like this was, you know, it was easily lost in history. It sat totally. in someone's basement for 50 years. So, you know, for it to, to, to get out, one was the miracle. But, you know, to also just let the world know about, you know, contributions to culture. But thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. For I appreciate that. Absolutely. But uh, even more than just the music, I see, you know, what they were saying about the change, you know, that they were right upon this, this change that was happening Mm-hmm. in society and just the way people looked at themselves and stuff. And it, it was, you know, really uh, quite poignant, I thought. And really on the, you know. I appreciate that. Did you come from a musical family, like a cousin or any of those things? Or I really think everybody, I think if you gave them, no, to, to answer your question, no. Nobody, not that they actualized, but I believe because my family all tended to be creative but never actualized it. You know, they were too fearful or didn't think it was their place or, right. you know, like I know my dad loved art and he loved to draw or paint and you should have done that, you know? And, yeah. you know, my mom, all those things, my brother, I know that he would have liked to play an instrument, but didn't pursue it. And I'm sure my sister, you know, she's an artist too. She makes things with her hands. So yeah, they all have that, thing but uh didn't really get the chance that i kind of just grabbed and took all right so what was the entry of or at least the moment that you felt like okay this is what i want to do like the curiosity factor what 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 was that moment for you hearing um songs like bang a gong by t-rex Mm-hmm. Just hearing certain songs on the radio, All Right Now by The Free, because there was something that was a little out of tune with one of the guitars on the rhythm guitar. And something about that made me want to go, I want to make those sounds. 
it was something that connected with my bones, you know, with my my crotch. And even as a little kid, I knew it. I didn't know what the word was, but I knew that it resonated deep inside me, you know, and I wanted to make those sounds. So I think, though, I'm I'm just lucky that the way my life moved, because it could have been anything. I could have moved on to another thing that I love. I mean, I loved horses. I rode horses for a while. I mean, the guitar, my family, I got this guitar. I tried to learn how to play it, but I didn't really have anyone to play with. So I kind of just learned the basic chords and put it down. Then my family moved like to the Cal- Sears catalog guitar. Yes, like, it is. Yes, it is. Everyone starts it off with. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and then my family moved to Los Angeles. So now I'm like, okay. Now I'm going to a, a place where there's got to be other girls that want to do what I'm doing. There's got to be in Los Angeles. There's got to be other girls that want to play rock and roll. And, you know, I was right. And I'm sure if I'd really looked around Maryland or, you know, any of the big cities or gone to D.C., I would have found it, too. But I just wasn't thinking that way because all my magazines that I was reading geared me towards Hollywood. OK, um, for you, though, you know, how usual or unusual especially in your formative years like was guitar encouraged or you know oftentimes <laughs> or was there someone like uh you might want to do piano or the clarinet or like something that i did a girl would want to do i did oh, okay in school you know but i, I wasn't very good at it and i wasn't i wasn't that interested and now i wish i now i wish i had paid attention you know and that i'd learned to play just so I could read music, but, you know, just to, to be able to play other instruments. I was made to feel quite <laughs> inadequate. I just worked with the trombone shorty and mm, he made mm. me feel like, <laughs> oh, really? you, know, you see that guy on, uh, he's a little, little kid with a big trombone, you know, right. but you know, he, now he's an older guy, but he's just, you know, he's a, one of those prodigy people. So did you anyway. just learn to play just mainly by ear or you, you still yes. don't read music now? Just ear. That's what's yeah, up. Yeah. Just heard. Yeah. Ear with my records and stuff. Were you encouraged? Because I think that. Yes. No, especially especially with anyone um, with a woman grabbing an instrument in the 60s and the 70s. Um, hell, even 80s, almost like I'm certain that there has yeah. to be some sort of figure there that says. Uh, women can't do that. And women, you know, everybody said that nobody encouraged me. Nobody. Really? Only my parents who told me when I was a little kid that I could be anything I wanted to be. So now they couldn't turn around and say, well, you can be anything except a guitar player. <laughs> so, you know, they just thought I'd grow out of it, that I'd phase out of it and go into something else, which I think I might have happened had I not moved to California and been able to find other other girls, then maybe I would have gone on to something else, but that didn't happen. And I went to LA and nobody thought it was a good idea. My guitar teacher said, girls don't play rock and roll, which I knew right away what he meant. But they want you to play acoustic instead. Yeah. Like follow Joni Mitchell or, yeah, you know. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, pretty okay. much. And, but I knew exactly what that meant. Girls don't play rock and roll. So what are you saying to me? You're saying girl, you're not saying girls can't master the guitar because I'm in school, I'm playing clarinet. There's girls next to me playing violin and cello, playing Beethoven and Bach. So you're not saying that we can't master the instrument. What you're saying is rock and roll is sexual by its nature. So if women are playing rock and roll and singing rock and roll, they're singing about sexuality and, Mm. and they're owning it. And we're not comfortable with that. And I knew that. As a as a kid, even then, I knew that that just you weren't allowed to it, but it had something to do with sex. And I, I was just like, no, you know, because this is so not about sex for me. I want to be able to do this because I want to do it. You know, Mick Jagger rides out on a big inflatable penis. I want to do what the Rolling Stones do. <laughs> you know, it had nothing to do with with that. It was about fairness. I know it doesn't make sense, but it was about no, fairness, it makes total and sense, quality yeah. and the right thing, what's right. I mean, I'm not hurting people, you know, right. I'm playing rock and roll for Christ's sake. Give me a break. So that that's the kind of fire that would fuel me on through, through all this stuff. 
Yo, what's up? This is Fonte, Fontigolo from Team Supreme. Black representation in media is very important to me. I think it's important to have our stories told by people who look like us and who have shared in our common experiences. Some of my earliest influences were Donnie Simpson. Uh, I would also say Tom Joyner, Angela Stribling, uh, Sherry Carter. They were just people who told our stories with a lot of class and dignity and were big inspirations to me. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Schmurter to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcast, The Center Black Voices. It's NPR Noir. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. All right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money, what I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See, I've never, I've never had the pleasure of having a conversation with anyone who, you know, is pretty much either first out the gate or at least in the pioneering stages of starting a movement to, to even ask them what their mind state is, you know, because oftentimes, yeah. you know, our, our, our greats leave and, you know, before we get to ask them about their process. And so, you know, I always wanted to know if, cause even when I was in high school, like someone, I think I, I was honest with one teacher, like what I was going to do, like I'm start a band with that. Da, 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 da. And, you know, I went to high school with boys to men and they were just, oh, wow. yeah, they were like on fire and, you know, sort of like, well, you know, are you guys going to be boys to men uh, popular? Or are you just going to be one of these local acts? And, you know, I wasn't thinking that deep about my right. process or anything. Right, but, right. I think he tried to talk me out of like <laughs> pursue my career. So yeah, yeah, see, I don't understand that about people. This is what I want to know about people and dreams. You know, you're sitting there shooting the shit with your friends, and you say what you said that you want to play, and someone tries to talk you out of it. Right. Why is everyone geared to try to talk you out of it as opposed to saying, "Yeah, man, that sounds interesting. Go for it." And at least if you don't make it, you gave it a shot. You gave your dream a shot. Think, what is that about people? I think, I think some people get offended or they get intimidated when they see that your dreams don't include them. And so they just try too. to shoot the shit down. You know what I mean? Right. 
That's it's like true. if I run a hamburger stand, the last thing I want you to do is become a vegan. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, don't don't do that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I I also think that um, oftentimes we're just I think in America we we often train ourselves to do the safe thing. Like I think hopefully That's- my generation is the last generation which you'll hear like fall back on something safe like i definitely heard that from nah. every uncle yeah, like covid that showed us ain't shit safe because do what you want to do yeah, right right, right. Totally. <laughs> exactly so what okay so you're a musician in los angeles and you're young at the time had this been you know 20 2007 or whatever you would have the aid of, of the internet to help you but what is the process of finding what you're specifically looking for which I assume are women that play instruments and are, are passionate about it just as you are. Like, so what's the process of searching for them? And at any point where you just like, at least, at least in the, the runaway stages where you like, okay, anyone male, female can join or for you, right. was it like, I right. have to find all women? No. And, the, and the, for the runaways, it was definitely an all, all women thing because, you know, we hadn't, hadn't really been done or, you know, if it had been done, it had been done years earlier with full-grown women, but not mm-hmm. teenage girls. And so I just had this thing and I, I wanted to do it. And I didn't see a good reason to change that that plan, you know, and give up so easy, you know, saying, oh, this might be hard. But, you know, it's hard to think back and realize how different it was then than it is now and how easily you can reach out to people on the phone, on the internet. Right. I mean, you're talking, we had rotary phones, you know, we're talking about phone booths. We're talking yeah. about, you didn't get a hold of people. You know, if you got a hold of somebody, you met them at a certain time on a certain corner. Right. Or at a certain place. You know, there was none of this. So Fonte right here, Fonte is, is probably, to his fan base, probably most known for being one of the first musicians to really Take, a, t- take advantage of the, I'll say the positive aspect mm. of internet colonization. Um, one of the, one of the bands that he started was a group called um, Foreign Exchange in which where, where's uh, uh, Nick. Now he's in Wilmington. Nick, right. But where he's was like, he? Two hours from me. At the time he was in the Netherlands and uh, right. we just recorded that. We met on OK Player on your <laughs> site and uh, we just started trading files online back and forth and uh we completed the album we didn't meet each other until it was over. wow and yeah. that was into so they didn't even meet yet before they made <laughs> a classic album you know what mm-hmm. i mean and so yeah so you know what what is the process of how do you find these these uh, at that time. birds of a feather if you will yes yeah. in that time uh i believe what we did is we put an ad in what was it the la weekly okay maybe and we went out to a lot of the clubs that I would hang out at and I would just survey the crowd and look for girls. Wow. I would, this is around 74, 75. This would have been 75. Okay. So you're like, uh, so 16, like, uh, 15, from au- like after August, after August 5th. So, all right, this is what I have to know. You're in, you're in California. Were you a driver? Did you have a car? Oh, I didn't drive. No. <laughs> buses. I took a lot of buses. And also my mother was, you know, sort of complicit in all this. So she uh would drive me to rehearsal. She would take me to the club sometimes and pick me up late at night. Yeah. Yeah. She So clubs weren't sweating like I mean, of course, now we live in a place where you gotta show, you know, damn near 12 forms of ID to get in anywhere. Or else your license gets But the club I went to was a it was for teenagers. There was no booze. So my mom didn't have to worry about that. So there was no booze there. And I don't think she was really thinking about drugs or anything like that. Who were your were your any any of your contemporaries also sort of in that movement that later became names themselves? Like no, not really. Once uh like Sherry and Lita, your band members sort of like Come to play. How did you know that? Okay, this is this is it. They're they're the ones. 
Well, we didn't have that many choices, number one. Was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. So it was more like, do we want to try? Well, first it was it was the drummer and myself, Sandy West and I. We met. Oh, Sandy, right. Okay. Yeah. And so we were solid as hell, Sandy and I. I took four buses to her house in Huntington Beach. Four? And we, yeah, four buses. And <laughs> I set up in her rec room and we played, you know, some just basic Chuck Berry rock and roll progression and said you know I mean, it was really good sandy played with a lot of guy you know high school band kind of things and so she pl- was used to playing with bands but usually guys so we really locked in and we called kim fowley who was our producer right who became our producer and said hey check it out put the phone down played for him he said it sounds great let's go find other girls so it was really you know from there we started looking. We started looking in clubs and I think put an ad in a paper and stuff like that. Who came up with the name The Runaways? I did. Okay. <laughs> so already you had your marketing plan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about this for a little while now. You know, a okay. couple months at least. Did you guys have a daily regiment or was just like whenever time was free? then we'll rehearse or whatever, but. Yeah, I really, to tell you the truth, I can't remember. I mean. Like, how can you be a kid and also start this very adult thing? Like, yeah, were all ho- parents involved, like, encouraging of this or? No. Uh, our parents were involved, but um, a couple of the girls were a year younger than me, so they were, like, in 11th grade, so they still had school to deal with, and, um yeah, not all the parents were thrilled about it, but in the end, I, I don't know. I guess they didn't want to fight their daughters or something. But uh, um, for hmm. school, I, I got good, pretty good grades, and I took my GED. I was already in 12th grade, but I wanted to get out a little bit early so we could go on the road. So Okay. I always um, wanted to know, um, I guess to me, the, um, the initial incarnation of the Runaways like, why weren't you the lead singer or why didn't you want to be the, the focal? Yeah, I was way too shy at the time. I, and, you know, I was way too shy. I had no confidence. Um, you know, I just I had no confidence and was just really shy. It was amazing that I could do what I wanted, what I was doing, at, you know, just getting on on stage with the guitar. But did you have your voice then or you just kept it a secret or... I sang back. I sang background vocals. Yeah, I could sing. Okay. Yeah, I could sing. I did wind up singing uh, half of the leads on the first Runaways album because okay. Cherie didn't want to sing the rock and roll or the rock and roll harder songs. She felt that she didn't have the voice for it or didn't okay. feel comfortable singing some of them. So the ones she didn't feel comfortable singing, I sang the leads and I sang backup on everything else. So, so I did have a voice, but I just wasn't. Comfortable being the focal point. Man, gotcha. So at this point, at this point in developing the band, who who are you looking up to? Because again, you guys have ushered in, mm. you guys ushered in an era, and you know, pretty much uh your your band's existence just basically starts a domino effect on again, people that come 10 to, to 15 years later, but you know, in 75, 76, when you guys are doing this band, like who's who's cool to you? Like, are the Stones and Zeppelin sort of like, ah, that's old, whatever music, like who who's grabbing your attention? Like, well, that's whose I, ass I want to yeah, kick. Yeah, I mean, I know I was disappointed with the Stones when they started doing. Um, like you weren't at Exile on Main Street first? Yeah. Or? I uh, no, I, I I wanted them to. You didn't like some play rock and roll, you know. I didn't like them doing some girls. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it was it was fine, but you know, I don't know. I guess I wanted them to be playing something that I could really rock out to, you know, whatever. No, no one stays rebellious forever. Like, I know, they, I know they, that. They, there's me. a good seven year. <laughs> I get it now. You, before you start doing your classical record or whatever. No, I get it now. <laughs> believe me, um, but. I think a lot, I think I really started looking to the punk rock stuff right away because the Ramones came out, I believe, in 1975, late 75. Right. The very first Ramones album. And 
all the punk st rock stuff I was reading a lot about. And I really gravitated very quickly to a lot of those bands because I felt, you know, kinship with a lot of them. I mean, there's always like groups or, or artists or albums that are always on someone's canon, like their top five records of all time. You always see the names, whatever. And I've never, sometimes you don't do the investigation of it. And, you know, of course, I'm always seeing the Ramones named everywhere. And finally, I listened down from, from top to bottom like two years ago and realized like how, how genius and hard it is to really convey emotion and, and lyricism in less than two minutes. Hey, ho, let's go. Yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that shit a jam, though. <laughs> <laughs> that shit jamming. Exactly. So for you, were you seeing that there was a science here, like, you know, the, the type of rock that you were you were fed as a child is way different than the ideas that you're about to spew onto the world. Like for you, it was like, look, we got to don't bore us, get to the chorus two minutes flat. Right. Well, no, you got to uh, see the thing was didn't really transfer that much into our music. It might, might have translated a little bit to my songwriting, but, you know, as a group, as a band. Most of the girls weren't really into the punk rock the way I was, you know, they were much more, they liked heavier bands, you know, more like, um, you know, the more mainstream Ze Zeppelin ones? or, yeah, okay, yeah, or, yeah, you know, gotcha. that heavier stuff, Rainbow, okay. you know, right. Richie Blackmore, that kind of stuff. So, you know, we didn't really see eye to eye on our hangout music. So we didn't, you know, we had to come from a place we met in the middle. So, you know, I just always considered what we did to be basic rock and roll. What was the division of labor as far as the songwriting is concerned and what you're going to cover or who's going to write what? Like, who's who's the primary songwriter of the group? Was that your job? I think, it was, I think it was me for the most part. It was me. I wrote either songs with Kim Fowley as a lyricist or I wrote songs by myself. I think I wrote a couple with some of the other girls, but not too many. And um, yeah, so I guess I was the primary one. Back then, like it was sort of hard for you guys to break out in the States, but yet, you know, you're the magic's working instantaneously when you go overseas. Like how much of a mind fuck was that to kind of, because that's fuck. very similar to hip hop. Like, you know, my band had to move to Europe for five years. Right. Just so that, you know, and quote, quote unquote, pull a Hendrix and then come back to the United States, like that sort of thing. Like, right. In your well, mind, was it a dream deferred or like, wait, what's going on here? Or well, like, what were your feelings on? I thought, well, you know, a lot of different, a lot of different feelings. Yeah. One part of me had wished that we had the same sort of response in the States, but it was mm -hmm. so different around the world. And Japan was like, all girls right. and like the Beatles, like mania, people fainting, girls fainting. And I think it I think it kind of scared a couple of the other girls. Yeah, I was exhilarated, but, you know, there were people were rocking the car and we'd never really had that kind of experience at all. I mean, anybody in their right mind would probably should probably be scared, but I, I didn't get too scared. And then uh, in Scandinavia, another place, all girls all wearing real pacifiers and sucking <laughs> on these pacifiers. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yeah. I didn't get it. And uh, I never found out what it was. I guess it was just some kind of fad or fashion that they were doing, but pretty and wild. There's nothing that Cherry had on a particular photo shoot or something? No, like no, just... no, no. They were giving us the ideas, you know? Um, oh, okay. But then, then in England, you know, England gets, you know, they, I think they got, the runaways a, a lot more than Americans did, but they still, you know, the English love to take the piss out of you. So mm -hmm. we took a lot of shit, but there were a lot of people, I think, there that liked us too. We did well in Germany and, and I think Europe did pretty well, but we didn't tour there a lot. So I don't know face to face and record sales. I can never go by really because, you know, who knows? So in retrospect, what, what would you categorize the genre? You know, are you guys at the the forefront of, of the L.A. punk movement? Were you just hard rock? 
were you kind of the the torchbearer for what will eventually become like the glam metal scene that would happen 15 years later with those groups in LA? Yeah. Like, I mean, I always just called it rock and roll. And I think what we did, I think what we did was punk rock to its core, you know, just doing, dictating what you're going to do and doing it and not listening to what anybody says. And I mean, I thought, and doing that in the context of how society treated you at the time, I think it was the ultimate punk rock stuff. You know, even for the girls, it didn't want to claim punk rock. They were being punk rock just by what they were doing. They didn't have to play it. So you guys pretty dissolved almost as quick as yeah. you, you came aboard. Um, do you remember how eventful or uneventful the, the, the last night of, of the group was before you realized that it's not happening anymore? I don't remember if it was. I know it wasn't a happy time and we knew it was a, a New Year's 78 into 79 was our last gig. Okay. And we knew it was our last gig because we had decided to disband after that because I didn't want, you know, I felt a, like I said, that musical separation was there between mm-hmm. girls that want to play heavier music and me. And so I thought, man, I don't want to get fired from a band I started or something weird. So mm-hmm. let me just quit and we'll just, you guys can do your thing. And well, I, I can assume that Lita was one that wanted to do yeah. the heavier stuff, right? It was not animosity. It was not, you know, it was it not in anger or anything. Right. We weren't going, fuck you, fuck you. Right. You know, it was just like, since we had been friendly, we didn't want it to be weird. And it's just like, just let me, I'll just go. You guys do your thing. You know, it's weird. Before, I got to admit that uh, in watching the documentary, I didn't realize that, quote, that Lita Ford was the Lita Ford in The Runaways. Because oh. <laughs> I guess my my dealings with Lita, any time there was always a person that wanted to give, I'm not even making any new gen- comparisons, but <laughs> if there was anyone that ever wanted to give like <laughs> hip hop the middle finger with a quote, <laughs> it was always Lita Ford. It was Lita Ford. <laughs> really? So, <laughs> I knew her more for her disdain of hip hop than really? I did for like, was she actually? Th- yeah, no, for real. Like, uh, I, I, I guess I should say I'm not surprised, but you yeah, know, like I, 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 I knew like her for her quotes of like why she hated hip hop. So I always knew that whenever I hear the name Lita Ford, I'm like, uh, uh-uh, what what happened now? But <laughs> oh, man, so you know. But then ask- when I started the thing, I was like, oh, she was a runaway. I get it now. So I don't for- want no guilt by association, though, because. Hey man, we all nah, we you all good. Beginnings. You made light a day. I used to watch that movie every day after school when I was in like third grade. So we Yo, <laughs> all right, y'all. You know what season it is. Tis the season for spring breaking and planning our summer travel. And if you're like me, you're already in your Airbnb app trying to find which spot is right for you. Now, listen, while I'm looking to spend all this money. What I'm not doing is thinking about making money with Airbnb. See, you got to change your mind state. Make the money while you're spending the money. How, you say, Laia, do I make the money? Well, you host at your house. And I know what you're thinking. I mean, my whole house? Uh, Well, no, you don't have to do your whole house. I mean, you could do a room or, you know, do the whole house. So make some money while you're spending some money this summer. I'm trying to tell you, your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. 
I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math and Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As a 21-year-old, are you feeling like, okay, well, I did that. What do I do now for you? It's just like on to the next. Like, did you? No, I was feeling like it was time to die is what I was feeling like. Man. I was feeling like the whole city of L.A. was laughing, going, we told you it wouldn't work. We told you girls can't play rock and roll. You know, and I just was I was not taking care of myself. I was drinking too much. It's my my dreams were crushed, you know, and and I had no friends. You know, it was like everybody was gone. You know what I mean? Yeah, they disappear in that level and you're just alone with your thoughts and your beer or whatever it was I was drinking. So how how long did the sort of the the the, the feeling of funk last before you started your I assume that, you know, starting the, the Black Hearts was your eventual. Yeah. Well, actually, I met my partner, Kenny Laguna, uh, okay. my songwriting partner and my producer. He became my producer and manager because nobody else wanted to deal with me. We met to write uh, songs for a movie that I had contracted to do before the Runaways broke up. I had to write six songs for a film. Okay. And so my manager at the time, a guy named Toby Mamus, knew Kenny and knew that he had worked with a lot of bubblegum bands in the sixties and knew that he could write songs quickly and should be easy to work with. So he called him and said, would you come out and meet Joan to do this project with her? And so Kenny did. And um, we met and hit it off and really became good friends the first day. Uh, I don't know what it was that he saw in me, but um, he uh, thought I was the real deal, I guess. And um, we wrote some songs and then I said, would you produce these songs that we wrote together? And he did. And then, you know, as we continue, I didn't have anybody to manage me. And so he had to put that on too, thinking it would be easy that he could get me deals <laughs> and all this and that. Right. But no, he started getting no's. You know, he knows a lot of people in the business and people just told him no. And then I think it got to him where, oh, my God, this is real. And and then he got pissed because then he saw this sort of, you know, just prejudice and misogyny, you know, straight out mm. bullshit. So right. I think, you know, that fight lit that fire in him to help fight for me. So it took about two years. First of all, whose idea was it to recover or to redo uh, I Love Rock and Roll? I don't think many people know that that's a cover song. Yes, yes. Uh, I saw that song when I was in England with the Runaways, and I saw this band on top of the Pops mm. called The Arrows, and they were playing the B-side to their hit, and the B-side to their hit was I Love Rock and Roll. I don't know what they, uh. their hit was. Okay. The B-side was I Love Rock and Roll. And I'm like, wins again. wow, that sounds like a, a hit to me. And I went out to the record shop and bought the 45 thinking, you know, the Runaways, maybe we could do this and it'll be a hit. But then I was reminded that by the other girls that we had done, we'd covered Lou Reed's Rock and Roll on the first album, on our first mm -hmm. Runaways album. And, you know, I guess didn't want Rock and Roll in every title and every album kind of, so sort of blew it off for a while and i just held on to the song and then after the runaways thought here we go see life life lesson you got to go with your gut yep that's the second time you learned that lesson um so how different does life turn for you once 
that song makes you pretty much a, a, a household name? Well, just I think the the fame level rose and I we had more people at our gigs and stuff and made a little bit more money. Finally, you could make a little bit more money. Uh, uh, so those things change a little bit. But, um, you know, for the most part. But is that also a scary feeling? Because I think oftentimes when someone gets a success, the first thing in their head is, oh, God, how, how am I going to sustain this? How am I going to make it last? What's the next single? Da, 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 da. Yeah, there was part of that. But I wasn't like so far up there that it was, you know, when you're number one and you're, I, I don't know, I guess, you know, on one level, I, you can't stay there forever. And I guess, you, you know, you know, you have to have your next one, I guess. Initially, we knew what that next one was going to be, which was Crimson and Clover. Crimson, yeah. Right. And um, what was it about that song that made you uh, want to choose that? Damn it. Just Amir, the fact it's like my, that... own, my only question of the day. <laughs> okay. It's a great song. Go, go ahead, Steve. You want to say it? Go ahead. <laughs> no, go ahead. Ask me. Uh, what made you want to cover Crimson and Clover? <laughs> I mean, James and the Shondells. <laughs> no, answer the question. I had to turn the light on. Go ahead. And when I when I well, you know when I met Kenny and I knew that he played those songs and I'm like so you played the Moni Moni da 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 he's like yeah and I'm like okay so I want to cover Crimson and Clover I just thought you know it'd be weird because I didn't want to change the lyrics and that was just the way I was I wanted to you know push the envelope a little bit because I just wanted to. The original recording so so I guess psychedelic and uh, yeah. so what was you guys just my reason of, for doing? It? I mean, because Tommy's Tommy's like when they I guess Kenny told me when he asked what what is it about you know it was about LSD mm-hmm. you know Crimson and Clover <laughs> so it wasn't about really a her mm-hmm. so specifically so when people ask me what I'm singing about it's like well, I mean, I guess I'm singing it more literally, but not specifically at anybody. You know, it's just being put out into the world is that is those sentiments, but mm-hmm. it's not directed specifically at a person. So at that particular point, coming into the early part of the 80s and whatnot, are, do you have a peer group? Are there is there a trusted circle that you can pal around with like normally you know birds of a feather flock together as far as like people liking each other's music whatnot like was there a tight-knit community in the sort of the la rock community by this point for you at least or were you still like no i was gone isolated out of there i was out of there but in 79 i moved came back to new york okay came went to new york so even in new york like for that is there was i mean no, I didn't hang out. I didn't really, I had, you know. I was also I going to you. say, like, everyone was sort of going new wave in New York, and you're going straight rock and roll. Like, were you a fish out of water? And, like, were you sort of upholding a tradition that you felt would soon sort of take a backseat? You know, I don't know that I thought ahead that much, that I planned it out or thought about, you know, what's the future of rock and roll or um, a lot synthier, you know, that, that there was a lot of synth music going on. Well, I mean, were you going to the the, the Lower East Side in, in, in the early 80s to see groups like Bad Brains or any like, were you at all interested in the movement that was happening in the Lower East Side? Right, was right. Sort of- I was, yeah, so I was interested, but I was working too much to be. I was on the road the whole time. I don't even know if I was around most of the time. I mean, okay. literally on the road all the time. All right. Pretty much from 1980. 365. Through, through pretty much, I mean, at least through November. And then, you know, depending on what the tour was, we were, we were always working. And then be off through January and then start working again in February. It was pretty, pretty brutal. And I didn't realize that till the pandemic hit. Okay. And then and then nothing was happening. And then I realized how much of my life I had been on the road constantly and all these other things we talked about, about, you know, feeling separate, you know, and being isolated. Mm-hmm. And but I did, you know, I definitely have friends that I uh, 
knew once, you know, once I was settled in New York and I had a routine and um, I, I still have that, uh, that sort of core few, I can count on my one hand level of friends. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's real life. Like, yeah. Real people Straight only up. have <laughs> two to three people. Wait, I always wanted to know this. Um, okay, so from my from my point of view as a record collector, um, all right, I'll explain to you, uh, Fonte. Well, you probably know already, but like for me, Boardwalk Records is almost akin to like Malico Records. Oh wow! <laughs> so <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> that said. I always wanted to know what was it about boardwalk records that made you choose that as your label? Because I knew that sort of as kind of as, as a second tier label for acts that were popping in the seventies for soul music. Right, like I know okay. that Ohio players wound up on boardwalk records for like their eighties catalog. Uh, I remember uh, uh, the five stair steps morphed into Wow. Uh, the Invisible Man's Band uh, for the 80s or whatnot. Well, Kenny so, would know so much about to... this because he, you know, I think he knew Neil Bogart before we got oh. involved. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Um, you know, so Kenny knew him uh, pre Boardwalk. I didn't know that Neil Bogart started Boardwalk Records. Yes. So yes. That explains besides, the Ohio players. Besides Casablanca. Yeah. Right. And, okay. and, yeah, and he just liked me and want, he really liked me a lot and wanted me to to be able to put out my record. So he said, you know, we'll put it out. And yeah. he and he did. And he died like the week before it went number one and never got to see it go number one, which really bums me out because he was such. He died in 81. Yeah. Oh, man. Man, yeah. I did not know that. But, um, yeah, he was a real believer. And, you know, one of those guys that, you know, always looked great. It was all sharply dressed and just, you know, believed in me and believed in Kenny, I think, more than anything. So Yeah, everyone that describes Neil Burgard describes him as like the last true, like one of the last creatives. And that was a suit, at least. Right, right. I mean, I know a suit's a suit, but whatever. Yeah, but I don't know. For me, though, I would say that like you were so ahead of your time was it weird to sort of have not a comeback of source but just to see and a lot say of the, yeah. well no 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 i'm just saying that a lot of these bands that started popping in the mid 90s late 90s started name checking like joan jen black hearts like or mm-hmm. or even with your work with the runaways like mm-hmm. for you did you not ever think that the day would come in which you would see Kind of the, flowers, the, yeah. The after effects of your of people that like grew up on your music, or well, especially like when the 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 riot girl, uh, with with Kathleen and and yeah, well that was like totally the key to kill. Yeah, because they totally did tip their hat to me, and I and I knew it. So because you know they told me so, and it was um, it was great. It was great to to see that. I mean, I I always knew that there whether or not people admitted it that we'd have some influence, you know, um, in, in life and to music and, and that, and it's really nice to see it confirmed and see people say it, you know, and not just girl bands, but some guys too. And that's really nice. So. Yeah. I was going to say plenty of times where like Kirk has, has name dropped you or, you know, or I know that girl, uh, was definitely a big fan. I was there that night and, um, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when he joined. Oh man, what a night! Yeah, that was, that was crazy. So how did how did you know? Was that was that surprising to you uh, when you got the news? Or you know, I I know oftentimes every every person I know that gets inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has the same sort of like nihilistic. Uh, if it happens, it happens. Whatever you know that sort of thing. But right. for you, was it? when you got the news of, of, of you getting in, like, what was the feeling behind it? No, I thought I was very happy, you know, of course I thought, but I, see, I'm used, I'm kind of used to not being up for awards my whole life. It's not really been what my career has been about, like nominated for a lot of different things, you know, right. it's not what's happened. So just the fact that I got nominated, I thought was 
was really nice, but I thought, you know, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if I'm going to win this, but, um, and I'll still, I still believe this to my core that because Chris said it on stage that night that they had, they felt they had no choice but to put me in, then they forced their hand. So whether, whether I would have really gotten in or whether it was that, I don't know. I'll say this much because, you know, I'm, I'm part of that. Uh, I've been part of that. Well, you know, I call the recreation of the 12 angry men scene, but there's like 35 of us arguing back and forth. Um, you know, your, your name has definitely been, at least for my first year there, which I think was like 2011, has constantly been like championed and argued and, and, well, that's and debated. Good. Well, you know, we were joking about, it's only a matter of time before you do your classical record or your <laughs> your soft album, but you know the the latest album you re, uh, released is your acoustic work, and you know how how did that feel for you? Like for you, is it a thing where you need a, a new challenge? And no, it was really it was a way to just we wanted to give the fans something different. We. I'd never looked because I had had such a weird relationship with guys telling me and my guitar teacher saying girls can't play rock and roll. I always kept acoustic guitars really at arm's length. I mm -hmm. never owned one. I never wanted to own one until about, you know, maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little bit less than that. <laughs> but um, you mean 10 years ago, you like finally like gave in and was like, all right, let me try acoustic guitar. Let me just have happens. it because I can't. <laughs> always hear my electric guitar you know if you're trying to write a riff and you really need to hear something right you know so i just had it but not a good one you know just a little shitty one to be oh, then a, a couple years ago we did a, a documentary called bad reputation yes it came out it was all about my career and my life and mm -hmm. stuff and um when we did the premiere they wanted us in la they wanted to see if we could perform a couple of the songs in the theater and I knew we couldn't set up electric and we suggested that maybe we try some acoustic stuff. So right. we, we did it, but with the whole band. So it was myself, my guitar player, acoustic bass and our drummer. Mm -hmm. And we, and we, you know, played bad rotation and a couple other songs and it, it felt really good. Actually, it felt a lot better than I thought it was going to feel. Mm -hmm. And, um, and like you could transfer the energy. It was going to be different than electric, but it was still worked. So then last year, 2021 and 2022 is the 40th anniversary of both Bad Reputation album and I Love Rock and Roll album. Because mm -hmm. one came out, they both came out in 81, I guess. Mm -hmm. Something like that. So we wanted to do some extra things for the fans and maybe record some acoustic stuff. So we thought, oh, we did that stuff for the premiere. Let's go in the studio record a few songs. Once we got in there and started playing songs, we really just did everything we could do live. We just, once we started recording, we just kept going. And um, we didn't really plan on having an album's worth or two of material, but right. just wound up there and thought, what the hell, just put it out. Yes, so indeed. How do you, how do you feel about it? Like you're, I feel good about it. I feel it's fun. It's different. We play some on stage, like we'll do our electric show and then come and then do instead of an encore, do like three or four acoustic songs. And it's been going over. We just started like a month ago, a month oh, okay. and a half ago doing doing it and see how it would go over live. Because, you know, I don't know unless I'm in front of people. Right, so, so uh they seem to like it. So we'll see what happens and we'll see what happens with the stadium tour. You know, we're going to see if we can work some into that. And if yeah. it works great, if it doesn't, what are those guys like now? Like Motley Crue and Poison? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I've met Def Leppard. We, play, we played with Def Leppard before. And okay. I, uh, but I've never played with Motley Crue. So I don't know. I have no idea what to expect, but it should be interesting. You know, it's weird to me. It's, <laughs> I, I learned this with Blue Oyster Cult. Def Leppard's album covers were more scarier than Def Leppard was. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, like, if Mutt Lang, you know, like, Mutt is too, he's too like polished. And, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. too polished and clean to really, like, 
I'm telling you, it's and more the album cover. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. if you listen to the Love Bites, whatever, like this fucking harmonies, like it's 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 just more enhanced California harmonies to me. You know what I mean? Right. And so I don't know, it's weird. I'd never truly saw I mean, of course, you know, they they create one anthem that will probably play in every gentleman's club. Um <laughs> now to the end of time. No, look how you but, know that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I, no, I just mean you know, sugar has a, has a kick ass riff to it, right, but right, I right. never considered Def. I mean, I don't I don't consider Def Leppard metal the same way that I don't consider the police hard rock. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Well, people are loose with their terminology now. You know, don't you find? Well, yeah. Sometimes people are just classifying things. Yeah, exactly. Right now, like where with with this storied career and. <laughs> Is there is there anything that you have yet to achieve or yet to uh, accomplish that you wish to? Oh, I'm you know I I wouldn't know who to, who to say specifically, but I'm always interested in doing new and different things. I just actually did something. Did I mention that with Trombone Shorty? Right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Absolutely. you know, it's 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 new for me. Uh, um, I'm not always great with that because I'm good with knowing, you know, being comfortable and doing what I know and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I have to try to get better with, you know, just jumping into the unknown and not being so um, getting about getting it. out of uh, uh, out yeah, your comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, but being okay with that and and being, you know, you're gonna live, you're gonna be okay. Don't worry. I don't know. I think I'm ready for my R&B album now. Let's go. Hey, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> there it is. Let's go. But Joe, thank you very much. Um, yeah, for 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 joining us and, and and doing this with us. And um, you know, we appreciate your work. I'm been a longtime fan of yours. Oh, thank you all. It's, yeah. been, it's been a real pleasure. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Thank uh, you. Enjoy the I've road. been a big fan too. Yeah, yeah be safe guys, out there, Joe. Yeah, you guys take care. Okay. Absolutely. Let's go. Joan Jett on Questlove Supreme. Yes. We will see you guys on the next go round. All right. Thank you. Questlove Supreme is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.